Hey guys, my name's Charlie and I'm going to read Isaiah 44 verses 1 to 8. Uh, This is found on page 720 of the Red Pew Bibles. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, who I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, The Lord's, and will take the name Israel. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. And what is yet to come? Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Uh, Please continue with me to uh, Mark chapter 5. Uh, verse 21 to 43. It's on page 995. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, rulers, named Jairus, came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue leader, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, 
Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kuam, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Good evening. Um, just move this. Let's pray again. Father, we ask that you would please speak to us this evening as we think about this amazing part of Mark's Gospel. We pray that you would uh, show us the reason we don't have to be afraid anymore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the past couple of weeks, uh, we've been looking at a part of Mark's gospel that keeps coming back to the idea of fear. Uh, The theme begins, if you remember, when Jesus and the disciples are out on the lake and uh, they're scared because there's a storm and they say, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus replies after calming the storm, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? We saw this idea of fear again last week in the reaction of the people who don't want Jesus to stay there, Uh, and the contrast with the man who is filled with uh, love and trust instead. And now in our passage, we see this theme emerge again. Uh, You probably noticed it on the way through. In verse 33 uh, of Mark chapter 5, the woman falls at Jesus' feet, trembling with fear. And then in Jesus' comment to Jairus in verse 36, he says, don't be afraid, just believe. So this evening, we're going to talk about fear. And it's an important thing to talk about. Uh, People often say things like uh, how we are an anxious society. And we are. One in four of us will experience some kind of anxiety disorder at some stage in our lives. One in seven of us probably will have this year already. But even those of us who are free from this affliction are still very often anxious. We are worried We worry about money, work, friendships, time management, career, the economy, the environment, free time, not enough free time. We are worriers. I'm certainly a worrier, as those who know me will testify. Now, when we talk about fear, we're not exactly talking about anxiety. Uh, They're connected, but they're not the same, I don't think. When we talk about fear, I think we're talking more about the things underneath our anxieties, Uh, the deeper and bigger things that drive us at a deeper level, although they do sometimes come to the surface as well, as we'll see in our passage. Now, I wonder if so far this makes any sense to you. Underneath your daily anxieties, can you vaguely make out some deeper fears? I've got to know many of you over this year, which can I just say has been a great joy uh, this year, And I know there are indeed some things which are sources of real pain and fear for some of you. Most of us probably. Fears of loss, fears of missing out, fears of failure, 
The same is true for me. Battling with fear is, is a part of life. Now, the Bible talks a lot about fear, more actually than it talks about anxiety. And according to the Bible, there is one deep and abiding fear that lies underneath all our other fears and anxieties. Human beings, as a passage which I mentioned last week, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, as that passage puts it, human beings are those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. I'll say that again. Those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Now, that's all a lot to think about and we'll come back to some of it. But this evening, though, as we meet in Mark, two people who are facing that fear right in the face, I hope we will see what they saw, that Jesus can make a difference to that fear because he has life in himself. And brothers and sisters, although that won't change everything or fix everything in your lives, in my life, I think fear is something we're going to have to battle with long and hard. I hope it will make a real difference to us and to the way we live with fears and anxieties. Okay, so let me invite you then to have a look at these amazing stories in Mark chapter 5. Make sure you've got it open there. Uh, Mark chapter 5 verse 21. Jesus returns across the lake to, uh, of Galilee to uh, Jewish territory, Galilee. And the crowds arrive once more. And then we meet a man in verse 22 called Jairus. He is a synagogue ruler. What is that? Well, he was not a rabbi. He was more like a lay service leader. And in that culture, he would have been a well-known public figure. Influential, probably well-off, respectable. Not the kind of person, actually, that Jesus has been having much success with. But when he sees Jesus, he falls at his feet and begs him desperately, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. You know, I can barely read these words anymore without crying. Uh, three times in the last year I've been in hospital for my daughter, terrified of losing her. Probably more terrified than I needed to be in retrospect. But, you know, this is a man who is he's desperate of losing something Precious beyond anything he thought he would have in his life. He was, and he, he, he's really put himself out there here. You know, this is a public moment. And Jesus was dodgy, frankly. The authorities thought he was dodgy, so this guy's putting him out there, himself out there, but he's, he's desperate. Well, Jesus what goes with him. Because that's the kind of thing Jesus does. Just notice that, by the way. Jesus preference is to have compassion on people. In fact, as we'll see in future weeks, his capacity to keep on having compassion in the face of pressure is incredible. To Jairus's horror, however, there is an interruption. Jesus is going along and there's a large crowd throwing around him, which already would have been slowing him down, I think. And then in this crowd, there is this woman who is also desperate. In verses 25 and 26, if you see there, we're given this brief history of this woman. Uh, it's quite like we're given the one we were given of the man with the demon last week. 
And it sums up so much. Her situation is just horrible. She has been, Mark tells us, subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now this almost certainly meant vaginal bleeding of some kind. This is a chronic menstrual problem of some sort. And she has had an awful time trying to get help. She had suffered a great deal under many doctors, Mark tells us. Doesn't that just sum up so much? Medicine in those days was okay when it came to external medicine, bandaging, splints, that kind of thing. Not great when it came to internal medicine and really abysmal when it came to women's internal medicine. Can you imagine the poking and prodding and poisons this poor woman has had to endure? And it's only made the situation worse. She has spent all she had, Mark says, and yet instead of growing better, she grew worse. I hope you have sympathy for this woman. This is not just an inconvenience for her. She is dying. Slowly but surely, she is bleeding her life away. So now she tries one last desperate measure. And at great risk, her condition would almost certainly have made her uh, ritually unclean and so to touch somebody, let alone a rabbi, was illegal and therefore dangerous. Uh, But what else does she have? She thinks, if I just touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Why does she think that? Where does she get that from? It's ridiculous. But what else does she have? It's, it's just a last-ditch attempt to save herself. It's, a, it's like a final Hail Mary pass from the other end of the field, which you know can't possibly work. And yet, in so many ways, this woman is the total opposite of Jairus. He is successful. She is not. He is rich. She is poor. He is influential. She is a nobody. He approaches her in public. She has to be secret. He is respected, she is rejected. And yet in this, they are the same. They are both desperately facing death. They're also the same in another way. Jesus is equally concerned for them. The woman touches Jesus' cloak and it happens. See how it says there? She feels it in her body. It's so visceral. She feels it stop. She feels this burden, this prison fall off her. And she wants to get away, but she can't. Because Jesus is actually interested in her. And he won't let her just have this transaction. He wants to meet her. He stops and turns around and asks, who touched me? Now, uh, it's ridiculous, basically. The disciples, they're there, they're in this mosh pit of a crowd. Everybody's t- And Jesus stops and goes, who touched me? And they think, okay, you're a smart guy, Jesus, but what is that about? Seriously. Also, they think, you know, we're kind of in a hurry here, Jesus. Imagine Jairus, he's standing there going, what, really? We're going to stop? But Jesus turns around and he will not be hurried. Something has happened that matters. And so he stays looking around. He waits. Imagine what was going through this woman's mind at this point. She's thinking, oh, it's me. I'm the one. What am I going to do? 
Mark tells us that knowing what had happened to her, she was trembling with fear. Why, why is she afraid? Just think about it for a second. Why, well, consider the situation. It's incredibly public. The whole crowd has stopped. You know, tumbleweed goes past. What's going to happen? She hadn't wanted to expose herself. She, she just wanted to kind of touch and run. But now the crowd has gone silent and they're waiting. Her story is going to become dangerously public. Imagine being in that spotlight for something like this in that culture, especially when you've had a 12-year history of being on the outer, which has gradually made you quieter and quieter as a person. She's not a public person, but now she's right in the spotlight. And yet, she speaks. She exposes herself. She comes clean. Did you see it there? She falls at Jesus' feet and tells him everything. There, in front of the crowd, she lays bare the most personal and, in that culture, humiliating details. I love this moment. I love that she does this in spite of her fear. But I love even more how Jesus responds. Daughter, he says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You know, this is just one of those great moments where you see that Jesus is so much more interested in people than rules. Everything about this situation was wrong, technically. And yet Jesus sees it for what it really is, utterly beautiful. I love Jesus at moments like this, don't you? The power and clarity he has to see people and, and touch them and love them. And he sends this woman away with a completely different life. Peace and freedom. Go in peace and be free. What a beautiful thing that is. You've got to wonder how Jairus was feeling though. Because this whole process must have taken some time, mustn't it? For Jesus to stop and wait, for the woman to come forward to tell her story, for Jesus to talk to her, he must have been getting more and more and more anxious. In fact, it would have been hard for an element of anger not to come in here because this is close to what we call malpractice. Right? This woman has a chronic condition. He has an acute condition. It's an emergency and yet Jesus is dealing with this long-term thing, slowly. A hospital could be sued for this, especially because the worst happens. Verse 35, while Jesus is speaking and taking his time, some people come and tell Jairus, your daughter is dead. Can you imagine the horror the despair, the anger that must have risen up in him at that moment. But Jesus cuts it off straight away. Verse 36, he says, don't be afraid, just believe. Seriously? But he gives Jairus just this glimmer of hope and he says, trust to it. Hold on to it. Don't let your fears take you to despair just yet. Then he gets rid of the crowd. Why does he do that? Do you see that? Why did he do that? Well, it's because, as we'll see, what's going to happen is more dramatic than anything anyone has ever seen yet. 
And they get to the house and there's another crowd of people who are probably professional mourners because they're, really, they're, really they're there really quickly, right? And they're, they're making a noise. Their lament is in full swing. But Jesus says something odd. Verse 39, he says, The child is not dead but asleep. That was stupid. They knew what death was. They laugh at him. Now, before we get into that, what does Jesus mean by this? I think we can't actually take it literally. The child is in fact dead. The mourners know what death is like. That's why they laugh at him. This girl is not just in a coma or something. Now, at one level, I think Jesus is just limiting the impact of what he's about to do. It's the same reason he wanted to get rid of the crowd. What he's about to do needs to be kept quiet, at least a little bit. We've seen him trying to do this all the way through Mark, and the reason has to do with the kind of Messiah he planned to be. But there's a deeper level to what's going on here. You see, Jesus is not, he's not just lying when he says she's not dead, she's asleep. He's not providing a kind of convenient cover story. Now, he says this because what he's about to do, what in fact he came into the world to do, was going to redefine the meaning of death. The child was dead, yes. But death doesn't mean what it used to mean anymore. He goes into the child with just the mother and father and the three closest disciples and they see the little girl lying lifeless on a bed. I don't know if you've ever seen a dead body in your life. Uh, I've seen two, and one of them was a little girl, nine years old. Let me tell you, there is just no doubt that it's over, that the person has gone. It's just a corpse. But Jesus takes the hand of this little body, and then he speaks two beautiful words in Aramaic. He says, Talitha kum which Aramaic's a normal spoken language. It's so tender and gentle. And it just, it's like he just says, honey, wake up. Little one, up you get. And she gets up. She gets up. She gets up. We've read this so many times, but do you know what it actually says? Do you know what he did? And she walks around and Mark tells us her age here so that we won't think it's a second miracle. Jesus doesn't just raise it to life, he makes a walk. No, she could walk anyway. He gets up, she walks around. And Jesus tells the parents, give her something to eat. She's alive. Why do you think Mark recorded those words in Aramaic? Presumably almost everything Jesus said in his life was in Aramaic actually. So why are these words preserved? Well, I think it's so that we stop and notice the incredible thing this was. That Jesus, with his words, gave life to this girl. He spoke into life what was dead. That is what God does. There's just no avoiding this. In the Bible, God is the one who speaks life into being. God is the one who breathes life. 
And Jesus does something here that looks eerily like this. He gives life to her. In these two stories, we see Jesus as nothing other than the one who has and can give life. He gives the woman life when healing flows out of her into out of him into her and then incredibly with this little girl he gives life from death that's not just a healing it's a resurrection this little girl is raised from the dead jesus you see has life in himself it's like he's just overflowing with life and he can give it even to the dead there's a great verse in john's gospel which says as the father has life in himself so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. But of course, these miracles were not the climax of Jesus' work. This was not actually all that it meant for him to give life. These were only signposts on the way to where he was going. That's why he went to such lengths to keep it quiet. Because his mission was not just to give life to a few folks who happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right need. Nice, but not that big a deal. But his mission was more than that. It was to change the meaning of life and death forever. Jesus' miracles of giving life to some were a sign of what he was going to do for all through his death and resurrection. In dying and rising again, you see, Jesus has broken the power of death forever. One of my favourite descriptions of Jesus is in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 17. Jesus appears to John and he says, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is the great thing these miracles point us to, friends. The fact that Jesus is alive, the living one who has life in himself. And that's why we don't need to be afraid. Because Jesus has changed the meaning of death forever. He has broken its back such that we can now dare to think of it as not even really death, just sleep. That's how the early Christians started to refer to death. Because it was a way of showing that they weren't They just weren't that phased by it anymore. It had lost its power to enthrall and terrify. It was just a momentary sleep, as uh, John Donne, the great poet, put it in a really great poem, Death Be Not Proud, which you, you can find, I tweeted it on Graveyard Church today, so if you do that, you can find the poem. He wrote, One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. That's why churches could be built in the middle of graveyards, which used to be places of horror and fear and haunting and death, and now they're just graveyards. That's why we can have church in the graveyard. Because death has lost its sting. Because we know we have met someone who is more powerful than death, who death couldn't hold down, whose name is the Living One. But how does this practically work out? That's a huge, powerful thought, right? Great passage, huge, powerful thought about death and life. 
how does it actually end up making a difference to us? Well, let me just say a couple of things. It changes the way we die and it changes the way we live. First, it changes the way we die. Uh, Death may seem a long way from many of you. I hope it seems that way, but the truth is, I hate to break it to you, it isn't. Some of you may actually know that all too well. Dying is actually probably the biggest thing any of us is ever going to do. And Jesus means we can face it differently. Because although death is never good, never a happy thing, always a loss, its sting is gone for those who trust in Jesus. It is no longer the ultimate catastrophe hanging over everything and ruining everything. It has been undone. We may not necessarily feel that, but it is true. A story I love is how, on his deathbed, Howard Ganess, a man who pioneered Christian student ministry in this country, he was asked, do you have confidence? And he replied, no, not confidence. Joy unspeakable. That is what knowing Jesus can do to the way you die. But it also changes the way we live. In two ways at least. First, it means we are released from the burden of making the most of life. Okay, let me explain what I mean because that probably sounds bad. Knowing that Jesus is the living one who has life in himself means that the pressure is kind of off this life. We don't have to feel the pressure anymore to get what we can while we can, to have the most fulfilling life we possibly can while we can. Now, is that a good thing, really? Shouldn't we actually want to, you know, seize the moment? Carpe diem. Dead Poet Society, you have to love it, except it's awful in its philosophy. But that could be pretty much the motto of our culture, couldn't it? it it's, that's the bucket list mentality. You know, got to get through, got to do these things, got to make my life wonderful. Well, sure. It's perfectly reasonable and a good thing to want to enjoy and make the most of life. But the fact is that none of us actually can. None of us, or at least very, very few of us, actually get to live the life we've always wanted. For most of us, for most people who have ever lived, actually, life involves disappointments. Missed opportunities, losses, things we didn't get to, relationships we missed out on, work opportunities we let go and regret. Most of us won't get to tick off our bucket list. That's life. For most of us, it will contain things we regret and are sad to have missed. But if this life is all we've got, if these few short years are it, And if the thing we absolutely have to do is to make the most of that time, then that is absolutely intolerable. You can't even think that. The shadow of death hangs over our whole life and fills every mischance, every bad choice, every foolish decision with infinite regret. And the pressure of this can be absolutely crushing. I think many people I know see things this way. As we get older, we start to feel more and more 
the pressure to make the right choices, to seize opportunities. We start to feel more and more acutely the horror of missing out on things. We desperately feel the need to have the most fulfilling life we can. But, you know, that that can actually destroy life. It stops us being able to live. Because we're constantly frustrated at, at how wasteful we've been with our time. Our short time. We look back on our earlier days with, holiday, with, with, with horror. What did I do in those holidays after school? Nothing. I did nothing for three months. But worse than that, this pressure to maximise our life can, can actually turn us into nasty people. It can make us careless with people. It can make us unwilling to keep commitments that cost us Because what could possibly be allowed to stand in the way of making the most of my life? When you know Jesus, though, that pressure is removed. Because death loses its power to overshadow and just pressure the present. And we are set free. We are set free to give thanks for the life we do have and the things we have been given to do, without feeling resentful for the things we miss out on. Because we know we will not finally miss out on anything at all. That doesn't mean there won't be pain and grief in the present. Of course there will. But it does mean that that doesn't have to crush us, and we don't have to avoid it at all costs. Because we know that there is an infinity of life ahead of us in which we will not be disappointed. And so we don't have to feel resentful that this life is what it is and not something else. We can receive and make the most of the moments we are given with thankfulness but without the burden of making them perfect because this life doesn't have to be perfect. It's the life we've been given and that is good. Okay, that's the first way it helps us live. The second way, what we see about Jesus here changes the way we live is this. It means our fears don't have to drive us anymore. Jesus and the life that is in him throws everything else in a new light. It changes your perspective and this can free you to act in faith in the face of fear, to do what you think is right and good even though it is scary. Because you know that everything finally, actually, is okay. It really is. You really are okay. And that can give you the peace and security you need to live in the face of your fears. Now, when I say live in the face of, when I say overcome your fears... I don't mean that we won't feel fear. When the Bible says don't fear, it actually does more than it says almost anything else. It doesn't mean don't feel afraid. It mainly means don't let your fears win the day. Don't let them control you. We see this with both Jairus and the woman. Both of them feel fear, and yet it doesn't own them. The woman speaks in spite of her fear. 
Jairus refuses to let himself despair in spite of his fear. That's what it looks like to be freed from fear by Jesus in this life. No doubt we will still feel fearful, some of us much more than others. And yet it doesn't have to enslave us anymore because Jesus has conquered the one thing at the bottom of all our fear, the fear of death. And that will, that will affect us, of course, in different ways. For some of us, it will free us to do incredibly bold and dramatic things for Jesus. For others of us, it will mean things that look much smaller and yet are really remarkable victories. Speaking about Jesus or your faith at work or with your family when you are anxious. Having a difficult conversation with a friend who you know is doing something stupid. Giving away some of your money instead of keeping it to protect yourself. Prioritizing things other than work even though you know it it will cost you there. These can all be beautiful moments of faith in the face of fear. So let me finish by asking you, are you afraid if you're really honest with yourself? Are you kind of scared? Me too. And fear is not a simple thing. And I don't want to pretend that it's, it's easy and this, all there is is just to believe and say, hooray. This is something we're going to need to keep working on together. But Jesus really can make a difference to it. He can take away the grip our fears have on us and give us peace and freedom in our heart. So let's keep looking to him and keep helping each other do the same and remembering that he is the living one, the one who has life in himself and who calls us to not be afraid anymore, but to believe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the wonderful things we saw you do here. We thank you for the way you met these people's needs, for the way you looked them in the eye and showed them that there was hope beyond death. And we thank you for the way that you look us in the eye and tell us to trust you. And for the way that we know that because you were dead and now are alive forever and ever, we know that's not a false promise, but one you can make good every time. Lord, we would really love it if you would do the work in our lives that's needed so that we would be able to trust you even though we feel afraid and live our lives free of the fear of death. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. It's our practice here at Church in the Graveyard to give you a moment to reflect, having heard God's word before we sing our last song. So whether you want to sit and pray, read.